Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 706 for the 14th of August, 2020. This week, Skylum's Luminar 3 has made remarkable strides on the way to Luminar 4. The application is less than four years old, yet it offers some delightful surprises. In short circuits, if you'd like to be able to create a temporary address you can provide when you're not quite sure you want to give someone your real email address, Mozilla's Firefox Relay may do the job. It is currently in private beta. Remember the Oregon Trail, Zork, Pac-Man, or Mule? If you liked those games in the 1980s, you can give them a second shot right now on any Windows, Mac, or Linux computer. No downloads are involved because they run in a browser window. In spare parts, only on the website, Microsoft is experimenting with hydrogen fuel cells for backup power at data centers and says they offer advantages over diesel generators. The Firefighter Safety Research Institute has released a report on a fire at a 2.16 megawatt lithium-ion battery energy storage system in Surprise, Arizona. And 20 years ago, the U.S. Postal Service was thinking about offering email. Just about everybody thought that was a dumb idea, but it might have solved one of today's problems. Photo editing application Luminar from Skylum continues to improve, and it has a lot of good features. In fact, the changes from last year's version 3 to this year's version 4 are little short of revolutionary, but there are still a few problems that get in the way. In less than four years, photo editing application Luminar has progressed from an impressive initial release to an even more impressive version 4. MacFun, they spelled that M-A-C-P-H-U-N, MacFun, they released the initial version back in 2016. It was for the Mac OS only. A year later, MacFun changed its name to Skylum, and the company released a Windows version in 2018. So the Windows application I'm reviewing today could be said to be just two years old. Most competing photo applications have been in development for far longer, so what Skylum has done in just four years, or two years, is really remarkable. So let's start with the features that make Luminar a true contender. Luminar offers three operating modes, standalone, external, and plug-in. As a standalone manager and editor, the user creates a catalog and imports files into it, then chooses one or more photos to edit. The edits are saved to a catalog file, and the finished images can be exported in JPEG or TIFF format. The edit steps, which are stored in state files, can be removed by selecting an image and pressing the delete key. That removes the image and all of its state files from Luminar, but it leaves the original image on the disk. Second option would be as an external editor. 
A few image editors do allow the user to send an image to an external editor. Lightroom Classics Library module, for example, has a transfer to Luminar 4 option in the library. It's in the plug-in extras section of the menu. More editors, including Lightroom Classic, support Luminar as a plug-in, and that's the better option in my opinion. And number three is as a plug-in for another application. Luminar 4 can act as a plug-in for Photoshop, Lightroom Classic, Photoshop Elements, Capture One, and on the Mac for Photos and Aperture. Aperture has been discontinued. In Lightroom Classics Library or Develop Module, the user selects Edit In to send a copy of the image as a TIFF, JPEG, or PSD to Luminar 4. Best choice there is a TIFF. After making the edits in Luminar, the user presses the Apply button to return the edited file to Lightroom Classic. And unlike Photoshop, Luminar honors the user's request for zip file compression on the returned file. The library was added in version 3 to provide image organization and management. It can be used to present images on a folder-by-folder -folder basis, or by albums that can contain links to images in many various locations. Thumbnail images still aren't created automatically at import time. Instead, they're generated when the user opens the directory and scrolls through it. This slows the process initially, but once the thumbnails have been created, scrolling is fast. The shortcuts feature is one that a lot of people are going to like. Regardless of how you've organized your photos in the directory structure, Luminar creates organizational shortcuts that allow you to browse images organized by year, month, and the day that they were taken. Whatever directory structure you created is maintained in the folders section of the interface, so you get the best of both options. Luminar has also added an On This Day shortcut. Select it to browse all of the images you've captured on today's date in any year. When I tried that function on the 29th of July, Luminar showed me the images from the 29th of July in 1999, 2000, 2001, and 2017. Apparently, I had taken no pictures on other years on the 29th of July. There are also categories for images that you've recently added, recently edited, recently searched for, or discarded from Luminar. Now, when you delete a photo from Luminar, any edits are discarded and the image is removed from the catalog, but the file remains on the computer's disk drive. And albums serve another purpose. They are used to group images that you want to keep together but without moving them from their location in the directory structure. Maybe you'd like to keep photos from a child's birthday parties over the years together. So you'd drag the images to a birthday album, for want of a better name. Maybe you'd like to have all of those pictures also be in a grouping of family images. So you'd drag them to the family album. The photos will be in their original location. Links to those images are added to the albums. It's very conservative for space. If you took a look at Luminar 3 last year and took a pass, take another look now. Luminar 4 has added some impressive artificial intelligence capabilities. The most impressive AI function is probably the ability to replace a sky, but I found the more basic AI enhance and AI structure controls to be more useful. That's because they're needed for nearly every image. AI Enhance makes smart choices about color balance, exposure, and contrast.
AI structure makes smart choices about sharpening and image crispness. The user dials each of these in by using a slider. It's easy to observe the before and after views of the file when you're working on it by clicking one of two options. There's an eyeball icon that toggles between a full screen before and after view, and there's an icon with a vertical line that creates a split screen with a movable divider. With version 4, Skylum has made large changes to the interface, primarily simplifying it and removing some options in a way that users of version 3 might find startling. Where version 3 had what seemed to be an infinite number of controls and options to modify the user interface, much of that is gone in version 4. This places the highlights squarely on the artificial intelligence tools, and indeed, they are impressive. The price is impressive too. Luminar 4 costs just $90. But Luminar is a bit of a disc hog. That's really not a problem if you keep your photo files and Luminar's catalog on a large disk. But you might be in trouble if you have a small boot drive and you fail to notice that Luminar places its catalog in the user's directory on the boot drive. Fortunately, moving it is easy. Just close Luminar, move the files from the default location to another drive. I selected Drive E because there's plenty of space there. Then open the catalog when you reopen Luminar. The catalog directory contains a folder called Preview Cache, and that's where the application stores thumbnail images in a dizzying array of folders within folders within folders within folders. Now that's okay because the user really never needs to deal with these thumbnail images, and there are some very good technical reasons for doing exactly what Skylum did. Luminar also keeps several copies of the SQLite database file that holds information about the images. Now, these are relatively compact, about 25 gigabytes on my computer for some 70,000 digital images. Currently, there are five backup copies of the database and the working copy, so about 125 gigabytes. That may seem like a lot, but really, these days, that's not much. The real problem is the massive number of state files that Luminar stores in the cache documents directory. Each change to every image results in the creation of a new state file. Move a slider and you generate a new state file. Change the exposure and you'll generate a new state file. Assert the application's lens correction algorithm and, yep, you'll create a new state file. Adjust any slider half a dozen times and you will create half a dozen new state files. Luminar has lots of sliders and controls, and making even the most basic adjustments to an image might require touching several of them, sometimes more than once, sometimes lots of times. Each change, no matter how small, will generate a new state file. So a file you work on for even 10 or 15 minutes might end up with hundreds of state files. Skylum already uses a database file to store information about images, so it's puzzling to me why the developers selected one of the most wasteful options to store state files. The state files use the XML format. XML stands for Extensible Markup Language. That makes the file minimally human-readable, although you have no reason to want to read it, but it is a horrid choice for data storage. The developers really should consider some other option. 
Each of the state files actually turns out to be a LUT file. LUT is an acronym for lookup table, and the files are commonly used for color grading in both motion picture and still photography. These give an image a particular look. So you have three possible approaches for dealing with these. First, you can just leave the state files alone. If you have enough disk space, that's probably the most reasonable choice. Or after you finish editing a file, you can delete the state files associated with it. There are two problems with this approach. The first involves finding the state files associated with a given digital images. The state files have names that look a lot like gobbledygook, and there is no way to identify which state files go with which digital images. And second, although deleting the state files seems to have no effect on the finished images, it does delete the image's edit history, and you would then be unable to step back through the changes. Or the third option, use a utility created by a Luminar user to run all of the state files through a hashing algorithm and identify the files with duplicate contents. Then find a way to create symbolic links to those files to maintain the edit history. If you'd like to investigate that, I have a link on the TechBinder Worldwide website to an explanation of how that's done. In any event, this isn't the kind of problem that a user should need to deal with. Well, the bottom line for Luminar 4 is four cats. Luminar 4 improves with age. Instead of three cats, which Luminar 3 earned last year, Luminar 4 gets a solid four cats. It does many things that other image editors do, but often does them in a different way. And the artificial intelligence features will be very attractive to a lot of users. Luminar 4 still lacks the ability to create virtual copies the way Lightroom Classic does, and the disk hogging caused by using XML format state files are the only two reasons that Luminar doesn't earn five cats. If you'd like more information, check out the Skylum website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, here's a question. How much spam do you get? Probably a lot more than you want. In fact, one spam is more than what most of us want. There is nothing you can do to remove your address from lists that spammers have compiled, but you might be able to keep your address out of the hands of an organization you don't know until you're sure that you actually do trust it. Developers at Mozilla have been working on Firefox Relay, a service that creates throwaway email addresses, and these addresses forward to the address you use to sign in to your Firefox account. It is currently being tested in a private beta release, so there are some warnings, and here they are. If you don't have a Firefox account, which also allows you to synchronize browser settings on various devices, get one. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week that'll take you to the right place to do that. 
If you have a Firefox account but you haven't yet been invited to participate in the test, you can sign up to get in line, and there's a link to tell you where to go to do that. The private beta test is currently available only in English, but it can be used anywhere on the planet. The Relay account is administered via Firefox, so presumably no similar add-on will be created for Chrome Edge or Safari. The addresses created will forward to the address that you have used to create your Firefox account. If you have a second address, they may be able to forward to those addresses later, but not now. And if you find the add-on and install it, but you haven't received an invitation from Mozilla, guess what? It won't work. So you really should just take all of this information under advisement. Firefox Relay is still really early in development. Mozilla says it is an experimental service that helps you to protect your real email address, the one most closely attached to your online identity. It lets you generate unique random aliases you can use to sign up for accounts, apps, or newsletters, and then forwards the messages to your real address. If you find an account is sending unwanted email or spam, you can block the alias and it'll stop sending email to your box. And once you no longer want a given account, you can simply delete the alias. There were about 5,300 testers when I started working with the application at the end of July. Relay allows users to create up to five forwarding addresses, and you'll get whatever random set of characters the application uses. Mine happened to turn out to be zcswqrn6u at relay.firefox.com. Among the features that may be added later is one that would allow users to define their own name and perhaps even to specify a domain. Another feature being considered for future development is the ability to reply to a message using the Relay alias. Currently, there is a workaround for those who know how to set a reply to address. When replying to a message that came through Relay, the user can specify the Relay address in the message's reply to field. And that's really little more than a bit of obfuscation. It won't really hide your true address. And there is one additional potential problem. Some systems recognize addresses from providers of one-time addresses like FastMail or GorillaMail or TempMail and refuse to accept them. Presumably, these systems will also block Firefox relay addresses. And keep in mind, this is a beta application. Even if you do manage to sign up for it, the results may not be exactly what you expect. Mozilla says Relay does not filter for spam, but Amazon's simple email service does block spam and malware. During my early testing, I sent myself seven messages, a message with no text other than the signature, which does contain a graphic. The message was delivered. The graphic was removed. Second, a message with no text other than the signature and no graphic in the signature. The message was delivered as is. Third, a message with no text other than the signature and an embedded graphic. That message was not delivered. Fourth, a message with no text other than the signature and an attached graphic. That message was not delivered. Fifth, a message with a lot of text and only the signature graphic. That message was delivered, but of course the graphic was removed. Sixth, a message with a lot of text and a large embedded graphic. The message was delivered, but both graphics, the one that I had included in the message and the one for my signature, were removed. 
And number seven, a message with a lot of text and an attached graphic. That message was not delivered. A message with no text and only a graphic is often spam, so that's why number three was blocked. Attachments of any kind can be dangerous, so that's why number four and number seven were blocked. This suggests that an important message from a friend could be blocked if it has an attachment. So if you're interested in participating in the closed beta test, sign up and give it a try. But don't use a Firefox relay address to receive any important messages because Amazon Simple Email Service might detect a legitimate message as spam and delete it. And it does that without telling either you or the sender that it has been deleted. Internet Archive is a nonprofit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, websites, and more. Maybe you've heard of it before because of its web archive called the Wayback Machine. The Internet Archive is a digital library with the stated message of universal access to all knowledge. It provides free public access to collections of digitized materials, including websites, software applications and games, music, movies, and videos, moving images, and millions of books. In addition to its archiving function, the Archive is an activist organization advocating a free and open Internet. The Internet Archive currently holds over 20 million books and texts, 3 million movies and videos, 400,000 software programs, 7 million audio files, and 400 billion web pages in the Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine gives us a view back into what the web looked like more than 20 years ago. For example, you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website just how primitive Amazon's website appeared in December 1998. The Internet Archive includes old films, old software, collection of microfilm, millions of scanned books, images from NASA, 140,000 images from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and even old games that you can play on any computer using just a browser. It's the old games I find interesting, and the MS-DOS Games section includes games that ran on DOS computers, and also games that ran on Atari, Amiga, and other early computers. No downloads, no installation. Just select the game, and it opens in a browser window. You'll find a link to the MS-DOS Games section on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Maybe you'd like to play SimCity, Pac-Man, The Oregon Trail, or Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? You can even play Mule that my family and I played on an Atari 800 back in about 1983. Mule was one of my wife's favorites. You're one of four people on a planet called Irata. By the way, that's Atari backwards. If there's just you, the computer can play the other three parts, and you'll have either six or twelve turns to accumulate the most resources and win the game. The game is about four hopeful explorers trying to make a fortune on Irata by producing various goods, food, energy, smith ore, and chrysite. And each of the goods, of course, has specific uses. If you don't have enough food, you'll have less time during your turn. If you don't have enough energy, your output will be lower. If enough smith ore isn't produced, there'll be a shortage of mules. Chrysite is the big earner, and it can make or break the game. The mules, multiple use labor elements, 
They're used to develop and harvest resources from the player's real estate. Depending on how it's outfitted, a mule can be configured to harvest energy, food, smith ore, which is what's used to construct mules, and chrysite, a valuable mineral available only in the tournament level. By the way, Wikipedia had that information. I had forgotten most of it. One of my favorites from back then is Zork, a game that used only text and was published by Infocom, even though it existed earlier on many computers and mainframes. Infocom split it into four episodes, each sold separately. Zork, The Great Underground Empire, Part 1. Zork 2, The Wizard of Froboz. And Zork 3, The Dungeon Master. The user had to type commands like walk north, or just N, and then the computer responded by telling you what happened, or where you'd moved, or maybe that you'd been killed. Some parts of the Great Underground Empire were inhabited by Grus, and if your flashlight ran out of battery power, you might be eaten by a Gru in the dark. Other areas had magic pathways that could not possibly exist in the real world. Fortunately, some of the books of hints are also available, so I may have to take a trip back to 1982 and wander around sometime in the Great Underground Empire. But I'll watch out for Grus. Fear no grooves in spare parts. Just point your browser at the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Microsoft is experimenting with hydrogen fuel cells for backup power at data centers and says they offer advantages over diesel generators. The Firefighter Safety Research Institute has released a report on a fire at a 2.16 megawatt lithium-ion battery energy storage system in Surprise, Arizona. And 20 years ago, the U.S. Postal Service was thinking about offering email. Just about everybody thought it was a dumb idea, but it might have solved one of today's problems. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.